Welcome to the Advent Houston podcast. At Advent, our mission is to embrace, embody, and extend the grace of Jesus Christ to the Texas Medical Center, Rice University, and the surrounding neighborhood. We're glad that you're here with us today. Good morning again. Welcome. Um, if you are uh, new to Advent, we want to extend a kind of a particular welcome to you. We're glad, uh, we're glad for everyone here, and we're glad uh, to have any newcomers as well. My name is Taylor Leachman. I'm uh, the planting pastor here at Advent, and we have been uh, kind of during this, this teaching time uh, and preaching time going through a sermon series on the beginning of the book of Genesis, which is at the very beginning of the Bible itself, and um, to try and help us better understand why our world is the way that it is, to help us better understand why we are the way that we are. Um, and so today, uh, we are all the way in Genesis chapter 9. We've gone from page 1 of the Bible to page 6 of the Bible. Um, we are uh, toward the end of the Noah story, um, as uh, you know, there's been a worldwide flood and uh, that flood has gone away now, and Noah and all of those who were in the ark have left uh, have left the ark, and then that's where we're going to be picking up today. Um, and so, if you'd like, uh, there are pew Bibles um, that you could read along with us. And actually, I want to say a quick note about that for those of you who don't have a Bible. Um, if you want to take this home with you, it's our gift to you. Uh, we, we believe that reading the Word regularly is a right and good thing, and so want for anyone who does not have a Bible uh, to be able to take it home. You don't have to tell anyone, um, and, uh, and we're glad to give it to you. But for, uh, for now, uh, let's turn to page 6 in the Pew Bible, or you can read along uh, with me on the screen. We're in Genesis 9. Verses 18 to 29. The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the people of the whole earth were dispersed. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham... The father of Canaan saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it on both their shoulders and walked backwards and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backwards and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan. A servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth, and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years, and all the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. This is the word of the Lord. Would you all pray with me? Um, Father, when we come to a passage like this that is kind of hard to understand and hard um, to figure out uh, 
what um, you're trying to teach us, Lord. I pray that you would um, give us ears to hear, uh, Father, that we would be able to better understand your word, that we'd be able um, to better understand your ways of work in the world. And I pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Um, Dorothy Day, uh, a writer and theologian, uh, said, everybody wants a revolution, but nobody wants to do the dishes. Uh, and I love that quote, right? Because that quote means that we all want things to change, um, but, we, but we want it to happen quickly. We want it to happen loud. We want it to happen fast, right? We don't want for it to come about in sort of small, meaningful ways over time. Right? We don't want to do the grunt work. We don't want to do the daily grind or, or to change gradually. And this is true whether you're a Christian or a non-Christian, right? Non-Christian approaches toward massive change. We all desire that revolution um, to change the way that the world works and you know, sort of bring political revolution, right? possibly through violence, to establish a new government or a new way of governing our people, right? That would be one example. Or perhaps, you know, bring social revolution. Um, you know, it, there's, there's sort of sexual oppression. And so we're going to change the way that the world thinks about sex, right? As happened in the sexual revolution 50 to 70 years ago, right? But that revolution can also be kind of personal as well, right? We want to take you know, take a single diet pill and get our old bodies back, unless, unless you're 20, in which case you're like totally fine with how you are, um, right? Or we want to make a New Year's resolution and be someone who goes, you know, to bed on time, who runs five miles a day and who reads a book a week and, uh, and cooks only healthy moods that are delicious, healthy meals, I mean, um, right? We want for things to change and we want them to change now. Right? I want to wave a wand and be different. I want to make something big happen and to change the world. Right? And that's true in non-Christian world, but that's also true in the Christian world as well. Right? We, rather than sort of calling it revolution, we call it revivalism. Right? Where we desire to sort of uh, manipulate the Holy Spirit to come in these big ways and change us in dramatic, uh, dramatic ways. So, you know, the idea being like, Let's take everyone on a retreat, and it will change their lives. They'll truly meet Jesus, and they'll grow in His grace, and their whole lives will be changed from that point on and forever, right? Or we want the Holy Spirit to come and to make the church different, to make her holy now, right? We'll, we'll pray for holiness, but we don't really want to deal with the scandals that are in our midst, right? Or we pray for love and we hope that kind of internal divisions and hatred amongst us in the church will be fixed, but we won't really want to do the act of repentance and reconciliation. Or we'll pray for generosity, even though right, kind of at the end of the day, we're like all still pretty happy with having what it is that we have, right? We want to be changed. We want to be changed in these big ways, big dramatic right now ways, but our passage today reminds us that even big changes, even big events, don't actually change us in fundamental ways. Right? A revolution that seeks to overthrow capitalism and to put socialism in, <clears throat> in charge ends up with just corrupt socialism too. 
right? A revolution of New Year's resolutions, even if we keep them, doesn't do anything to change the reasons why we procrastinate, right? Or the reasons why we eat our feelings or watch TV instead of read a book. Even spiritual revolutions attempt to change kind of through this revivalism where we spend, you know, time on amazing retreats, right? At at a phenomenal church conference, at a week-long Christian camp, right, that are wonderful. I don't hear me denigrating on those things. But they leave us pretty similar to who we were beforehand, right? Um, And that is what we see in our passage today. That though God has brought about this catastrophic flood, and though God has brought Noah and his sons through that flood, the flood doesn't actually do anything about the root cause of sin. Sin is still there in Noah's heart and in the heart of his family, right? And so that's what we're going to look at today. We're going to look at particularly the sin of Noah and then secondly, the sin of Ham. So first, let's look at the sin of Noah. The flood has ended, right? Uh, Noah and his family, they've left the ark. God has made this amazing promise to Noah and his family and all of those who are coming after that he will never again destroy the world uh, with a flood. And we talked about that covenantal promise last week, right? And so Noah responds to this covenant by doing what he was supposed to do. He begins to cultivate and to have dominion over the earth, right? So he's taking care of it. He's farming. He's producing, And the passage tells us that he plants a vineyard. We don't know if, you know, that is sort of in addition to other things, right? Uh, As, you know, he's planted potatoes and apple trees and a vineyard. Or if he's just sort of like, this is what I'm doing, I'm planting a vineyard. We don't know if it's in addition to or only. But much like the sin of Cain, who used the produce of his field for his own purposes... We see here that Noah uses the produce of the vineyard for his own purposes, for his own ends. He drinks it, and he drinks it, and he drinks it, to the point that the passage tells us that he's drunk, right? And he's essentially passed out here. We don't know Noah's motivation. We don't know what drove him to keep drinking, like like this episode actually talks about. It doesn't seem... Like this is something that he struggled with in the past, right? As he was repeatedly referred to as being righteous. Um, Granted, that was righteous in comparison to the other people at that time. Um, But since the author of Genesis was calling him, uh, wasn't calling him righteous qualitatively, like, like righteous in comparison to God, it's possible that he was struggling with this beforehand. And so he is yet again. But I think it's far more likely that this drunkenness is something that's new, right? Perhaps this new sin of drunkenness came about because, you know, the flood was crazy um, and he just wanted to get away from it all, right? I'm sure that drinking in the city went up during Hurricane Harvey or during COVID or during the freeze, right? In fact, uh, I think economists have, have noted that as there is a recession, bars and alcohol companies actually perform better, right? As stress increases, the desire for fleeing into alcohol increases as well. 
Right? I can imagine Noah's desire to escape, to numb himself following 40 days of rain and 150 days on a boat with you know, even just his family alone might be enough, but then also a zoo on top of it, right? And when the waters recede, there's nothing left of his former life and, you know, the people that he knew before, and all of a sudden he's just feeling hopeless, and maybe that's what drives him to it. Maybe Noah's drunkenness here came about because he feels like he already did the faithful thing, right? And maybe he's, you know, I've earned it a little bit. I've earned this opportunity to just kind of relax and to do my own thing, right? Lord, I did what you already want. I kind of, let me alone. Let me be. There's a famous story that we tell in my family um, about the very first night that uh, our oldest daughter, Amelia, was born. Um, Juliana was in labor all night the night before, and I didn't sleep at all during it because uh, I was so nervous. And then the next night, uh, you know, we got to sleep a little bit. Juliana, to try and, and feed Amelia, accidentally knocked over a cup of water and tried to wake me up. I said, Taylor, help me. And I said, in my sleep, I kind of already did. Um, meaning, you know, like, I already did what I needed to do. Leave me alone, right? Um, that was not the right response. But you get the point, right? It's, I, I did my thing. Now it's my time, right? Or perhaps it came about because he stopped being vigilant here. He stopped being vigilant in watching for his own heart, right? That belief that we all kind of have as we get older and older, and we've had some success at putting sin to death, and uh, we get tired of fighting, and we think, you know what? I don't think I struggle that much anymore. I'm doing just fine as it is, right? And so whatever the reasons may be, I think we can all identify with them. Right? We feel that temptation to justify our sin by thinking we deserve a break. Right? We've been vigilant. Now it's time to let loose. Or we so easily stop paying attention, attention to temptation. And all of a sudden we're back in it. Or we feel that temptation to flee everything. When we get overwhelmed, you know, whether it's sort of to physically flee. Um, but most often I think it's, it's mental fleeing or spiritual fleeing. Right? We drink, we use TV, we, we, uh, we even use good hobbies and good habits that we flee into. And any of those things that we run to instead of running to the Lord ends up actually being a sin. And I want to be clear here, this passage is not teaching us that drinking alcohol is wrong. Right? But it is the overindulgence in it that is wrong, as is the overindulgence in all good gifts that God has given to us, right? It, whatever, uh, you know, um, whatever it is that we turn to to keep from feeling our feelings before the Lord, that is where it is wrong and it is sinful. Wherever it is that we turn to instead of to the Lord, that is where it's wrong and that is where it's sinful, Right? Alcohol is a wonderful gift from the Lord, and it's used to celebrate and to enjoy. Right? If it wasn't, then Jesus' first miracle makes no sense to us. Right? Um, it would have been like him turning water into poison if all alcohol was actually wrong to drink. But Jesus' first miracle was a joyful celebration. 
um, so that people around him could enjoy the good gifts that God had given as a foretaste of what's coming. But like so many of God's good gifts, we take it, we take what is good and we make it ultimate. Right? The temptation to use alcohol or to abuse it is strong. Or for you, it may be a different type of temptation. Um, you know, to online shopping or uh, sleeping or eating or um, watching or scrolling or exercising or working. Whatever it is that we use to try and escape, let's look at it. Let's bear it before the Lord. And I want to pause here for just a moment, even though this isn't the main point of the passage today, because I think in particular struggles with alcohol um, are a part of many of our stories, right? It might be others in your life. It might be you. Um, but sort of as a, as a pastoral vulnerability, um, I can say that you're in good company because it's actually a part of my story, um, that I have been tempted and fallen many times into use and abuse of alcohol in my past, right? Rather than turning to the Lord in my fear and in my anxieties, I turned to it. And because of my wonderful wife, my wonderful family and friends, I had support that I needed to help me name that temptation, to help me walk before the Lord in truth and in repentance, Right? And with their help and with the Lord's help, I recognized that I was on a path away from Him and toward ultimate self-destruction. Right? And so my point in saying all of this is, no matter what that path is for you, you are in good company. And not only that, you can't do it alone. You need to reach out to someone else to walk with you. And it would be my privilege to do that, or it would be my privilege to help you find someone else to do that with you as well, right? You are in good company. But Noah's drunkenness and the sin of alcoholism or whatever it is isn't the main point of our passage today. The main point that I want to drive home here is the really confusing part of the passage, which is the sin of Ham. So let's turn to that. Right? The passage tells us that after Noah drank from his vineyard, he got drunk and he lay uncovered. Right? Essentially, he's passed out from drinking too much, and he's vulnerable. Um, and Ham sees the nakedness of his father, and he goes to tell his two brothers about it. He sees something is wrong, and you know maybe it seems sort of fun or funny, and he goes to tell his brothers that they can kind of join in on the fun as well. But their response is the proper and good response here. They're thinking, all right, we need to honor our father um, and we need to cover him. And so Noah wakes up the next day and discovers what has been done, right? That he had been in a vulnerable position um, and that two of his sons took care of him, right? But he curses Ham. In particular, actually, he curses Ham's offspring, Canaan, only one of his four children. And he blesses Ham's brothers, Shem and Japheth, now, what is going on here, right? Um, there are a lot of different options that could be happening here. I don't know how many of y'all were here a couple of weeks ago when we talked about uh, the Nephilim, you know, the sons of God and, and the sons of man and kind of creating offspring together. And, you know, the, the, basically my point is 
it's kind of like that in that we can't be definitively sure we know exactly what's going on here, right? So thus saith Taylor. Um, so it could be, um, it could be that Noah's passed out drunk and naked, and Ham, sort of, and maybe also his son Canaan, uh, kind of along with him, which might be why Canaan is getting cursed here in particular, that he sort of sees the vulnerability of his father and decides to, to kind of mock and dishonor Noah, right? Kind of like, um, you know, a really bad middle school sleepover party for the kid who falls asleep too early, right? You know, you get the Sharpies out and you, you dishonor the friend in that way, kind of making fun of them um, in, that, in that regard. It could be that that is what is going on here. But if that's the case, it feels a little bit like the curse is, is too much, right? A bit too harsh. What I think is far more likely is that something more serious than a harmless prank is going on here because throughout the Old Testament, references to seeing the nakedness of someone is actually a reference to sexual activity. Um, and not only that, but throughout the Old Testament, seeing a man's nakedness can be in reference to actually seeing the wife's nakedness, right? Um, so it could be that Noah's wife, or you know, Ham's mother in this case, is with Noah in this situation. Perhaps she too has had too much to drink and is in a vulnerable position, or perhaps because Noah is unable to do anything to care for her in this moment, that is what makes her vulnerable, right? So while some commentators, I think, go too far and suggest that Ham is sexually assaulting his father or mother, what I think is far more likely is that Ham recognizes his parents are vulnerable here, and he goes to tell his brothers about it because he wants to see if they're going to get in on it too, right? In some sort of deviance in his heart, he wants to take advantage of his mother or father. He wants to humiliate them in their position or something along those lines in this vulnerable state. But Shem and Japheth refuse to go along with it. And because their father or mother are vulnerable, they go to cover that vulnerability without ever taking advantage of them. Right? They seek to honor their parents instead of to humiliate them. Right? They see the image-bearing aspect of who they are rather than uh, you know, what Ham sees, which is he sees whatever he wants. Right? Like the old cartoons when a hungry coyote sees an animal and it turns into like a big ham. You know what I mean? Right? You stop seeing them as they are and you see them as you want to see them. Whatever is actually going on here, it isn't all of Ham's children that are cursed. It's just Canaan. Um, and to the original audience, right, the Israelites who are about to take possession of the land of Canaan, those who have left Egypt in slavery and are about to take over that land, they would have understood this curse. Right? Because the people of Canaan were known for their sinful behaviors, particularly their sexual sins. Right? They were a people <clears throat> whose land God was going to take away from them in judgment and give to the Israelites instead. So the original audience would have recognized the sexual deviance or the sin that was going on in this story. They would have seen it as something wrong right? and something that seemed to run in the family by way of the curse here. 
But I need to pause for a minute and talk about the curse of Ham and the ways in which this has been historically misapplied. Um, Because it's this passage that many Americans, um, American slaveholders and slave supporters pointed to in order to try to biblically justify the slave trade that was going on kind of from the 15th, uh, 1500s all the way through the middle of the 1800s, the enslavement of the people from Africa. Over and over again, this passage says that Canaan will be a servant, which is a really good translation um, that the ESV translates it as here. But the word servant has a lot of range in the dictionary, right? It can be slave. It can be servant, paid servant, right? Um, And people began to focus on the curse as if it was to all of Ham's children, not just Canaan. Right? They would focus on the fact that Ham had four sons, Cush, Egypt, Put, and Canaan. And ironically, they focused primarily on the other brothers, right? the three brothers that would have represented the descendants of those in Africa. Um, and they pointed to this passage to say that people from Africa were under this curse and that it was a God-given mandate for them to be enslaved and to serve in that capacity. Now, as I explain all of this uh, in you know, pretty broad brush, but still pretty, pretty accurate of what the thinking was at the time, if your reaction is, that is a whole lot to get out of this passage, um, right? They might be reading something into this. Your reaction would be right. Um, it is very easy for us to read things into the Bible, something that we want to see there. It's easy to read our own justifications into the Bible and to try and make it say whatever it is that we want for it to say. And that's why it's so important for us to do two things. One is to recognize that there are some parts of the Bible that we cannot fully understand. That this passage and all that was going on here is not completely uh, clear to us. The Bible isn't entirely clear in all of its stories and writings. Some details may be a little bit lost to history. But not only that, number two is that we need to do our best to allow for the Bible to read the Bible, for us to read the Bible on its own terms, right? To begin with the scriptures, to read it, to see what the passage means in its original context, and then to try and apply it to our lives, right? And the less clear passages. We ought to be less sure. We ought to know what we ought to uh, be less sure in trying to apply it in crystal clear terms unto ourselves. But as I say, you know, there's aspects of it that are not clear. Let me speak a word of encouragement here. As Protestants, we believe something that uh, this is like a, a, a three thousand dollar word for cocktail parties. We believe in what's called the perspicuity of Scripture. Right? Um, you will not be tested on that later. What that means is that we believe that the Bible is clear. Now, not clear in everything that is written, but that it is clear in all that is necessary to understand God's saving grace. When we open the Bible, we may not understand every part of it, but what is overwhelmingly clear and leaps off page after page after page is that we have a God who pursues a sinful people. 
right? That we have a God who redeems sinners like us. That is what it means when we believe that the Bible is clear. So while there's a lot that is unclear, let that be an encouragement to us that that part is clear over and over again. So what is the point of this passage? Well, even though some of the details may be fuzzy, this passage is clearly teaching that oftentimes we expect that big events will end up changing us in big, in big ways, right? That, that COVID and that our starvation for relationships during lockdown would have changed the way that we interact with each other, uh, but it didn't, right? Or that a worldwide flood might do something about the problem of sin and evil in Noah's hearts and in the hearts of his children, but it doesn't. The same sin is there. And even though as Christians we believe that God has dealt with our sin, right, and has made us righteous in the sight of God through the incredibly big actions of Jesus, of his death, and of his resurrection, right, that we still believe and recognize that we sin until he comes again. So what do we do about it? Right, well, we continue to follow Jesus, We continue to confess our sins, to enjoy his forgiveness, and to seek to live differently. We continue to die to ourselves daily. And we recognize that these little daily actions build up over time, and they change us. We don't wait for the big events to finally get here in order for our lives to change. We seek to live faithfully each and every day, each and every hour. And when we fail, because we will fail, we run to God again recognizing that that changes us again. So I started off the sermon with a quote from Dorothy Day, and it's a quote that I only know by way of another uh, faithful Christian woman writer by the name of Tish Harrison Warren. We have her book out in the lobby called Liturgy of the Ordinary. And Warren, kind of picking up on that theme, writes, you can't get to the revolution without learning to do the dishes. I often want to skip the boring daily stuff to get to the thrill of an edgy faith. But it's in the dailiness of the Christian faith, the making of my bed, the doing dishes, the praying for our enemies, the reading the Bible, the quiet, the small, that God's transformation takes root and out of which it grows. And so whether the sin that you bring here this morning is big or small, The ways that we grow as a Christian, um, they begin small. We begin with prayer, with confession, with thanksgiving to God and request that he would intercede on behalf of others. We continue in fellowship with one another and joining parish groups and in one-on-one coffees with uh, with me here, with others, right? Um, With play dates and dinners and phone calls with others. We keep coming to worship to learn more about him. We serve others, humbling ourselves before them. And over time, the Lord changes us. He takes sinners like you and me, and he molds us more and more into the likeness of Christ. Would you all pray with me under those ends? Father, we are grateful. We are grateful that um, though we want to change in big, dramatic ways, Lord, that you allow for us to change in the small ways. So I pray, give us the diligence to continue to pursue, pursue that. Um, be at work, Father, in our hearts and in our lives. Give us the courage that it takes to, to name our sins in front of one another. Um, 
Give us uh, the grace um, and the patience to love one another in their sin as well. And Father, we pray all of this in the name of Jesus, by the Spirit. Amen. Mm-hmm.